0: Well, it is coming down to the very end of our study in Galatians. It is also an election year. I'm excited about that. All the wonderful commercials, all the blessed programming that will go on this year as you just get to hear all of the campaigns praise how their opponent is so worthwhile and they they just disagree on the issues. That's all it is. That's not how it is, is it? When you can't win your argument, it seems to be you just attack and assassinate the other person's character, drag their family through, do whatever you have to do to win at all costs seems to be the way. That's not a good approach to anything. When Paul lays out this conclusion, he's going to lay out as an attorney would in the final... Their final statement, their summary of their case, before the case is given to the jury. This is how he's laying this letter out, and it comes down to the very end, and he's presenting it in the form of a letter to the Galatian churches, and they must render a verdict. There is no such thing as a, I will ride the fence. I'll be friends with the Judaizers who are bringing this gospel of Jesus plus anything, circumcision, baptism, become a Jew, dietary laws, all of the things that they were mixing together. There's that group, and then there are those who preach the gospel and have suffered for 2,000 years because they say Jesus is the only way. It's grace alone. It's faith alone. It's Christ alone. It's scripture alone, to the glory of God alone. Those two messages are not saying the same thing. So Paul gets down to the end of this letter, he's laying out the case, but what he refuses to do is to drop down in and to go low and to just start just destroying people. He sticks with the issue. He stays on point on the message. It's their message that has the problem. And in all of it, he would be praying that those Judaizers would actually hear the message and that his presentation would be winsome so that they would come to worship Jesus alone as he did. He knew what it was like to be on the other side. So he's inviting them. He's writing in such a way that it's clear. He loves them. He's like a preacher that says, in conclusion, or now as I, let's bring this to a close. Is he done? Not yet. (laughs) He still has a while to go. He has something more he wants to say. When he says, let's bring this to an end, he's saying, pay attention. Give me your full attention. Don't miss this. This isn't the credits rolling after the movie and you just shut it off and walk out. This is a summary of the letter that if someone was late to the table and they just arrived today, in the, in the summary of Galatians, you would hear the heart of the entire letter in a nutshell. He's going to offer these opposing views. He's going to commend them with this letter to God and to his grace, and then they would have the responsibility. Where will my voice be added Will my voice be added with the judaizers and they can put me in their number we got another one They left Paul they're at, they're with us Would they add their voice with Paul to say, no, there is one gospel that saves and my voice will be added in the proclamation of Jesus is Lord and Jesus saves and it's all what God has done. It is not what we can do. There's no room for, uh, I'm just not going to say anything. I'm just going to pray that it all works out. Paul is commending them. He's calling them to action to stand for what is right. In this section, verses 11 through 18, we're going to look at the first part this week and God willing, we'll see the next part next Sunday, the close of this. Four right responses is what we're going to see, but look at verse 11. See with what large letters I am writing to you with my own hand. It is those, so here he's talking about the Judaizers, works plus Jesus, those who want to make a good showing in the flesh, who would force you to be circumcised, and only in order that they might not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. For even those who are circumcised do not themselves keep the law, but they desire to have you circumcised that they may boast in your flesh. But far be it from me to boast except From now on, let no one cause me trouble, for I bear on my body the marks of Jesus. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit, brothers. Amen. This is the word of God. This letter is missing some very significant things that Paul would normally write to churches. He would normally... Say something of praise. I thank God. Something of thanksgiving that you always remember me, that you have sent an offering, that you have. It's not in the letter to the Galatians. Usually, Paul would say something to the effect of, Will you pray for us as we invite, help us, share with us? It's not in this letter. There's no praise, there's no commendation, there's no inviting of, Please join us in this. It's absent. And it's absent for a reason. Paul is very driven. He's on point. This is serious. If they don't deal with this, the churches won't make it. The gospel light will diminish in these regions. So there's four right responses. In this closing section, for 2,000 years ago, they had a response to make. And for us, 2,000 years later, how do we approach Bible study? We have to first of all go back. We have to go back 2,000 years across time. We have to cross that barrier. We have to cross a language barrier. We don't speak the same language. We have to cross a cultural barrier. We're not in the same culture. There's similarities, but we're not in the same culture. So we have to go back 2,000 years and we have to interpret the scripture, understand what is Paul saying, who's he writing to, what's going on, and then we move forward 2,000 years back across those barriers to today, 2020, where we live, what we deal with, and know that God's word is sufficient for our lives, for salvation, for salvation for sanctification, for our holiness. And so as we look at this, the first response is look closely at the letter. Look at what Paul is saying. Paul personally took up the pen to highlight, to emphasize a few important truths that cannot be overlooked by the churches. This is his signature of grace on this letter. He says, see, with what large letters I am writing to you with my own hand, So this tells us something. When we look at this, we see that the letter is authentic. The letter is trustworthy. It bears Paul's unique signature. But it's missing what he usually puts in there. Praise, thanksgiving, pray for us. Generally, Paul would use a scribe, a secretary, an amanuensis is what it was called. And he would dictate, and the amanuensis would be able to to formulate, put that all together, write it very neatly And Paul is here saying, look at the letters. Paul's custom was this way. It'll come up. The way he closed the letter to the Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 16, 21, I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. Okay, so this was customary for Paul. This is his fingerprint. You ever been somewhere? Like, you gotta give your fingerprint. You've got to have your signature. We've got to have uh, multiple, multiple forms of uh, verification to make sure it's you and not someone posing as you. Scams are everywhere, right? So this is an authentic letter. When he closes uh, to the Colossians 4.18, I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. Remember my chains. Grace be with you. See, see that invitation to prayer? That's not in Galatians. He's not asking them to do anything for him. They need to hear the message and not be, what is our custom if we're confronted with something, go back to something familiar. Ooh, Paul just said something really difficult to us. Uh, Now let's go to pray because he asked us to pray for him. He's suffering and let's quickly get back to comfort zone. Lord, help Paul, he's suffering and uh, I'm sure that he could use some uh, offerings. And no, stay on point, deal with this issue they're right there as the letter is being read. So don't pass go. Don't collect $200. Deal with the people who are sitting under the hearing of this word. That's what he's saying. When he writes to Thessalonians, 2 Thessalonians 3.17, I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. This is the sign of genuineness in every letter of mine. It is the way I write. You know anybody that you can figure out their writing. You know who wrote the letter? I mean, parents, when, you, when your kids leave a note, you're like, oh, I know who's writing this is. My grandmother, my mom's mom, when I stayed with them in Wisconsin when I was eight years old, my penmanship was horrible. And she sat me, she's like, oh, she used to be a school teacher in a one-room you know, school way back in Nebraska or somewhere. She was like, oh, Brian, you know, sit down. I sat at that table. She fixed my penmanship in a week. I mean, I wanted to move on with life. And she's like, stay, work on it. By the little lamp that's in my off, it's on my desk now. That little lamp, I sat by it. I studied that lamp. That's how I just fade off into thinking about anything else. And it has little gears and it can move up and down. It's like, write and fix your writing and write neatly. You know, she straightened me out. Much more loving than uh, I just portrayed there. But she was concerned about my penmanship, Paul asks them, examine the large letters. Now, there's three major views on what Paul means here. What, what really happened in this letter? It's possible, some believe, well, his eyesight was failing. So when they handed him the pen, my grandfather, my dad's dad, his, I, I looked for that letter. I had found the letter, and I lost the letter again. I was looking for it this morning because has his, his eyesight failed, even when we went to pay for the food in the store in Montana, he took out his checkbook and he had to get to the where's the spot to sign and he signed his name and then he handed the lady behind the counter the check like fill it out whatever I owe you right in there and I'm like whoa you signed it and she filled it out that's what they did. Well his address was Victor Wise Swan Lake Montana. He didn't have that got to him. That's all you had to have was his name and his, and it made it. It's like middle of Montana Victor that's his mail. So that lady was trustworthy, had his signature, but his writing, it's distinct. It was big. It was large. He wrote heavy so he could read the best of his ability as his eyesight failed. Somehow Paul, so some would say, well, his eyesight was failing, and so this is how his uh, penmanship would be distinct, maybe. Um, It's possible that he did write the whole letter. Some hold to, yeah, he wrote the whole letter. The whole letter is in large print. That's possible. There's a third perspective, and that is that the, the secretary wrote most of the letter, and then Paul said, now let me have it. I'm writing not just my name. I'm writing the summary section. So this is what it would have looked like, something like this, possibly, all right? The, the scroll comes. Ginger's like, are, are they going to be able to see it? Well, that's kind of the point. Because you know the, the manuscripts the documents, they didn't have just all kinds of money to just have endless paper. So you needed somebody who actually wouldn't be throwing away every sheet, you know, every, every scroll. And that they would be writing, and their, their, their font would be, you know, uniform, lowercase, and all of it would be put together and organized. They didn't have chapters. They didn't have the verses. That came later. But then when you get down to the section where Paul says, give me the pen. You probably can't read it from where you are, but this is how whoever is reading it in the congregation, and they could surely pass it around and say, here it is. And every person would be able to take that bottom section and say, yes, that's Paul's writing. That looks like his writing. And some of you, when you text or you know people when they text, they use all caps all the time not understanding, it means like you're yelling all the time. The sun is shining, you know, or I can't believe the lion's lost again. And you're like, no, I was just saying, I can't believe the lion's lost again. But you used all caps. So when you use all caps, it means you're, you're intense and you're adding emphasis. And if you use emphasis all the time, then suddenly you lose the point of being able to add any more emphasis because everyone around you is deaf. When Paul I believe, writes this final section. He says, let me have the pen. He writes in his font the large one-inch letters, and he impresses it to say, this is from me. It is authentic. And secondly, it's important. By him writing it himself, he's stressing, this is important. Don't overlook this. Don't get to where you heard everything and, you know, um, I need to go get the car started. Well, I, you know, we've got a small group today and my, my mind's just shifting off and, and I've got to go. And sometimes we can do that, right? We get distracted. We get I've got to do this and I've got to do that. And I, I listen to most of it. I'm just not going to listen to that part about application. I've heard the sermons, but I hear you calling us to engage in small groups. But I just don't do application in life with brothers and sisters in Christ. Beloved, no, we cannot make you join a small group. But I'm telling you, you're missing out on life together with brothers and sisters in Christ, and you're missing that fellowship. When Paul adds the emphasis, he says it's important, and don't move beyond it. Get this. You must get this. He's adding emphasis to it. He's adding weight to it. This is important. And so he stresses that, and he writes it to them. Not only that, but he is affirming and reaffirming their relationship. When Paul takes it by saying, he says, let me have the pen. I'm personally vested here. I personally care what they do. He's not just, you know, pre- he's not just at batting practice. He's not just swinging, you know, in the, in the dome golf balls. He's not target shooting. There's people that he loves and they're not listening to him. They're going to easily say, man, you know, the pastor's always just trying to boss me around. He's trying to tell me what to do. Paul is always trying to just, I wish you'd just leave me alone. Do you understand what you're asking of the man of God to leave you alone? I don't think we do. They didn't. So he says, give me the pen. They're not gonna say, I don't think he really meant that. Ah, I think that was somebody else. They're like, that's his writing. He's an apostle appointed by Jesus and we confess Jesus as Lord We should listen because all scripture is given by inspiration of God is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the purpose, the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. It's through scripture and it's in application and it's in community. And Paul is saying, let me through this pen and this letter, put my arms around you. Let me reaffirm my love to you. And I, I, don't, I don't do this well all the time or many times or too often. He's not just interested in winning the argument. He's not just interested in, in pushing down the, the opponents, the people who are different. There is that. He must win because he's right. It's truth. And it's in the balance. But first of all, before he jumps to, they're wrong, they're wrong, they're wrong, he says, I love you. You matter to me. Your families matter to me as your pastor. Your lives, your discipleship, your training of your children, your influence upon your children and grandchildren and your neighbors and our community. We're not just doing, you know, shadow boxing. People's souls are in the balance. And Paul was saying, Give me the pen. Two pieces of communication came just recently. I was at Lake Ann, Saturday night, kind of late. I was getting all my things ready for the next morning, and boom, text message comes in. I get a text message from a young man at college now, and he's writing, and, and just God moved in his heart that night to say, I'm so thankful for all that was invested in my time in this church, and here's what God is doing in my life now, and here's the church where I'm at, and this is what we're trying to do, and here's a a friend that my roommate and I are praying for and reaching out to. Did he have to send me that message? What prompted him to send me that message? I'm gonna say it was love. Love. It was gratitude. Do you know what that message did for my heart? I'll never forget that message. Then, a couple weeks ago, come in. There's a card on my desk, piece of mail. I open it up. A young man, college age now, moved away. I'm so thankful for all that was invested in this ministry, in this place, and youth camps. And here's what's going on now. I'm so thankful. And enclosed, he put two cards from two different years at Lake in a camp that I had written to him. And he enclosed those. Do you know what that does? You know what encouragement that does? Because I know those young men, what, they don't have anything better to do? How many college-age guys are writing cards? Okay, so that means it wasn't for appearances. It was because God's still working in their heart and moved them to, I can't just keep this here. I need to actually say back, I'm thankful. This is how God works. I'll never forget, those those go in my file. My challenge is that I remember those somewhat often unseen movements of God in people's lives, way more than negative and criticism and you should have done that better and this, that, that I remember, hey, God is sovereign. And no matter where our kids are this morning, who have been through our camps and youth programs, no matter where they are right now, no matter what city they're living in or what bed they're still sleeping in at noon on the Lord's Day, do not grow weary in doing well. For in due season we'll reap if we faint not. So as moms and dads and aunts and uncles and grandmas and grandpas and brothers and sisters, do not grow weary in doing well because we can't see what's going on in the heart. But God does. And when we offer our lives in service to him, when Paul writes this and he says, oh, I love you. Say so, well, he didn't really say that, but he does, and we'll get to it next week when he says, "Brothers, brothers, Philadelphia, I loved. Them. I love you, and it's my hand. Let's not miss this. Where's the second response? Not only do we want to look closely at it, but listen carefully to the warning." And we see this in verses 12 and 13. Shall I tell you in conclusion? And in closing, point number two. Oh, that means he's almost done. No, that doesn't mean he's almost done. You just want to get our attention. Listen carefully to the warning. Paul is going to contrast the two different beliefs. Paul's adversaries, they were against the gospel like he once was. He was there when Stephen was stoned, killed holding the coats. He knows what it is to be an enemy of the cross, of an enemy of Christ, an enemy of the church. So when he's writing about these Judaizers, he's not forgotten. That was me. So he's not willing to stoop to just unkind rhetoric, to destroy the other people with whom he's still... Say, come. Come to the come to the truth. Come to Christ. There's an eternity of difference between the gospel of Christ and all religions of self righteousness. And beloved, there's only two systems of faith on the entire world. One is it's on you. You have to do it. It's by works, whatever the system is. It's you have to earn it. You have to try harder. You have to do these things fast this way, make these trips. Whatever it gets filled in with, the burden of your salvation is on you. And then there's genuine Christianity, which is you have to surrender. God has done it. It is finished, Jesus said, on the cross as he was crucified by his enemies. And these Judaizers in the church are in line with those who persecuted Christ and saw to it that he was crucified. So Paul needs them to understand. You remember in Wizard of Oz, they get to the, you know, the city, the beautiful city, and they get there in the Oz and the voice and all of that. And then, what is it, the little dog, you know, that gets in there and like behind and pulls the screen open, you know, and he's behind there running all the levers and doing all that. And he's like, whoa, no, nothing you see here. Pay no attention to the man. Like, you know, blocking it all away. Paul. Is, he's one more time in this letter, he's pulling that curtain back and exposing the Judaizers. That's what these warnings are. He's pulling it back saying, this is what a self-righteous religion, this is what works-based religion has to offer. These are the warnings. And he says in verse 12, it is those who want to make a good showing in the flesh. There's that word sarks again. So you believe to live by the flesh or you live by the spirit. They want to make a good showing in the flesh who would force you to be circumcised, and only in order that they might not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. For even those who are circumcised do not themselves keep the law, but they desire to have you circumcised that they may boast in your flesh. So this morning, look at these warnings. Letter A, beware of the religious facade. The religious facade, you know what a facade is? That That fascia on a house, it's that appearance. It has no support. It's not a load-bearing wall. There's no pillar. It's just, it makes it look nice. I mean, you can go in, uh, you see different houses that just look horrible, and then you know, somebody knows what they're doing. And they go and they put new siding on, and they put new paint on, and they do a couple different things, and you drive by and you're like, whoa, what happened to that house? Well, it got a facelift. There's a facade there. They didn't do anything with the walls, the beams, you know, the the main framework of the house. They just changed the appearance. And now you're like, wow, that was a dump. And now look at it. It looks really good. And I'm telling you, there are some people who really know how to do that well. And they take a house that's just like an eyesore and they turn it into, wow, that's a beautiful house. Okay, religious systems, works-based, that's all they care about. The Hollywood scene, the prop. There ain't nothing behind it. It's just a prop. Jesus dealt with that. Matthew 6, don't don't, don't do what you do to be seen. Matthew 23 deals with the Pharisees. That's how they did everything they did. Basically, these are religious show-offs. It's pride. They wanted to have some statistics to send back to Jerusalem to say, hey, just letting you know, we're following up Paul everywhere he goes. And and uh, we, we got 17 over here in this city, and they joined their full Israelites now. And they're Christians, that's fine, but they're Israelites now. They're doing the Israelite things. And over here, we got 42 over there. That's what they wanted. That's what they were after. Me growing up in camps and whatnot, uh, an evangelist comes in, and he wants a, he put the pressure on and get the people down front and do what you got to do. To, to get him to pray a prayer, why? So he can send out the word, under my preaching came 42 kids or whatever and this is, you know, God's really using me and, or that was just a lot of pressure that you put on them. And I was in some of those places where, where heavy-handed pressure speaking made everybody like, I guess I better go pray again. I don't even, you know, know what's going on here. So we're not that far removed from what they were doing in these Galatian churches. But what does God care about? First Samuel 16, 7. But the Lord said to Samuel, do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearances, but the Lord looks on the heart. Right? Christianity focuses on the heart. False systems of religion... They care about the external. Get him in the right clothes. Get his hair cut. Get him trimmed up and cover up the tattoos and do this and do that and change his music and get him in a different whatever. And now look at what, be honest, we've done. God deals with the heart. We got to remember that. Letter B, religious legalism changes people by force. Here's Paul's adversaries. They're trying to convert these Gentile, these Galatian Christians to Judaism. They're using constraint. That word is putting pressure by means of threats, entreaty, force, or persuasion. You must hold to my views. Hold to my views. This is what, and this is the only way, and this is the right way, and the only way. And everybody else is wrong. And if you don't do it our way, you're wrong. If you don't use our Bible, you're wrong. If you don't, you know, this translation, you're wrong. That's what Paul was before he became a follower of Christ. Jesus said in John 16, 2, They will put you out of the synagogues. Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he is offering service to God. And they will do these things because they have not known the Father nor me. And Paul was that individual. His testimony in Acts 26 Verses 10 and 11, he says, and I did so in Jerusalem. I not only locked up many of the saints in prison after receiving authority from the chief priests, but when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them and I punished them often in all the synagogues and tried to, and here's this word, the same word, make them. Constrain them. Pressure them. Threaten them, to make them blaspheme, and in raging fury against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities. Paul is saying, I don't have to worry about the facade anymore. I'm telling you, this was me. When he was sharing his testimony, it was not a testimony. Well, I was pretty religious, and I did a lot, and I added Jesus to my life, and Jesus really helps me do a lot of things better now. I'm am better in my business, and I'm better in my you know thinking, and I have better days and better. No, 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 no. Paul is like, hey, here's the bottom line. I was a horrible murderer filled with anger. I hated God. I hated Jesus. And he, in love and mercy, rescued and redeemed and made me his own. I belong to him. He doesn't have to be afraid of, well, what if people find out how bad I really am and what I really think? God already knows. And once we come to terms with God already knows you, Then what's left to hide? If God knows you and loves you and accepts you, receives you on His terms, who are you worried about? They might reject you and not be your friend anymore. If I tell them the truth about Christ, if I tell them the truth about that lifestyle, if I tell them the truth in love, then then who are you afraid of? All fear is gone when we stand adopted and redeemed in Christ, and we know how bad we are. And he loves me. And he has forgiven me. And the accuser of the brethren bringing all of that junk repeatedly up before the Lord. Him? You have him being a pastor? You have him? you know what he does? Do you know what he did? And Jesus repeatedly, I paid for that. He's mine. It's more than just Jesus like, oh, man. He messed up again. Oh, No, 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 no. Jesus is my advocate, and all who are in Christ is your advocate. And he says, I know that. I knew that when I died, and I love him. And if he's given us Christ, how will he not freely with him give us all things, Romans 8.32 says. We have Christ. We have standing. Religious legalism is driven by fear. Paul exposed the underlying motive of the Judaizers, What do they want? They didn't want to be persecuted. They didn't want to suffer. So here's what's going on. You have the Roman Empire. Caesar is Lord. That's what they would say. You have different nations and peoples in that protected empire, okay? So the, the Israelites, the Jews, were protected. They were sanctioned within the Roman Empire, and they were protected. When the day of Pentecost happened, and the Spirit came and 3,000 people came to know Christ in Jerusalem, the epicenter of Judaism, under the umbrella of the Roman Empire, then immediately Christians are this odd bunch of people who are homeless. They are culturally, let this sink in in an election year. This world is not our home. We're we're not citizens first of the U.S. of A. We're citizens as believers of heaven, and therefore we don't ebb and flow and up and down and all over in emotions based on our political parties faring or not faring, doing well, not doing well, what CNN says or Fox says, and all of our emotions are all over the place. We are citizens of heaven, beloved, and so from heaven down we're to legislate this is kingdom life this is kingdom and and we care about the the place that we live and those who lead and we pray for them and we long for righteousness we defend life and we defend uh, against that which takes life through abortion we don't hide that but we remember that God redeems abortion doctors he redeems those who have committed abortion. And so there's forgiveness. And one sin isn't worse than another sin. We're common in this area, in this way, and we care. But we're citizens of heaven. And in that little pocket. Now you got this group called Christians and they're being persecuted by Jews and they're being persecuted by Romans and suddenly there's no room for them and their families are kicking them out and now there's a great need and now there's thousands of people coming to follow Jesus and now there's a lack and, and offerings are being given and supplied. What is the way to say, uh, I'd like to have a prayer request that the persecution goes down? No. The answer to that would be, here's all we have to do. Stop preaching the cross. All we have to do is just let them do what they got to do to make us Jews, and then everybody will think we're Jews. And then we're protected, and all our trouble's over. Why was that not a viable option? Because it contradicts the gospel. So it takes the very thing that we we stand out for in the world that we could not save ourselves. We are sinners in trouble. And God in his mercy sent Jesus, born of a virgin, lived a sinless life, died my death on the cross, not to help me try harder, to rescue me, to forgive me. Donald Trump said this week, our president, I never thought I would hear the words, and they were so beautiful to me. And, and before I say this, I'm not contradicting what I just said. We're to honor a president, and I'm not saying, here, I'm not, I'm not handling the trial and all that, everything. But he said these words, and it stuck me, that it would feel so good to hear totally acquitted. And I was like, "Ooh, you're so close. Because that, that's on this one account. If that feels good on one account, and people have heard that in all trials and, you know, all different types of situations, and they've heard, not guilty. <sighs> and some of them have been guilty. And people are like, how can that guy be uh, declared not guilty when everyone knows he's guilty? Well, they didn't have enough evidence. All of that, you can get, here's the deal, beloved. Guilty. I'm Guilty but before the Father in heaven because Jesus says, Father, he's mine, and therefore he's yours because you love me and I died for him and he's in me, therefore not guilty because I paid for it. And you can't take two payments for one debt and you be just. That debt has been paid in full. It's accomplished. So the accuser of the brethren has nothing on me because I'm in Christ. Are you? That's the question. That's the so all they had to do to skip persecution is stop preaching the cross. Use the cross as something, you know, there's just like that, that's a, a self-help and it gets you further. And Jesus was an example for us, and he suffered and died. So I guess I should suffer, you know, as a husband, and you know, yes, lay down my life and die for my family. And no, 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 no. That's selling the gospel so short. I had no hope. I had hell. Every blessing in this life was undeserved and stood in witness against me that God is good and I'm bad. And he forgave me. And he showed mercy on me. And I'm unworthy. And he is worthy. Legalism is driven by fear. Legalism is fundamentally flawed. Do you remember this? Where'd they go? You remember this? This is what Paul is saying. They're coming to you and they're saying, hey, here's what you gotta do, sign on the dotted line. We're gonna get your number uh, that you're now a convert because you've been circumcised, now you're an official Jew. And Paul is saying, do you you remember the 10 commandments? Let's just take the 10. And uh, here's the deal, right? Don't drop one of the 10, just 10 for your whole life. All the commandments, don't drop one for your whole life Who can do that? So the Ten Commandments aren't here. This is all you have to do to be right with God. The Ten Commandments drown us, sink us. Leaves us in the place to say, I can't do that. For my whole life, from birth till death, never dishonor your parents. Are you kidding me? Never hate someone without cause. Because most people will say, I've never committed murder. And Jesus says, if you've hated someone without cause, you've committed murder in your heart. Guilty, guilty, guilty. What hope do we have? Paul is saying, those who bring religion as your means of salvation, it's fundamentally flawed because they can't even do what they're saying you should do. And Paul could tell them, and I know, because I used to try to do it. Our works are insufficient to justify us before God. And lastly, religious legalism, these legalists, they boast about the followers. So you can look in all different types of, um, whether you want to go into Scientology, okay, they advertise, if they have somebody who's a ringer, somebody who's an uh, an A-list star, they want to boast in that. Here's the followers. But here's the deal. There's a lot of people who follow in a lot of different religions. That that cannot be the, the, the bar on who is right and who is wrong based on who you have following you. But they want to flaunt. They want to take people and and take them from the gospel that they trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, the message that Paul brought, and say, Come over here and side with us, and we can push that back on Paul. We can tell the people back in Jerusalem, They're with us, we're winning. So Paul is putting this to the churches and he's saying your voice is going to be added somewhere and if you're silent, your voice is added to the opposition of the gospel. That letter would be read and those people that needed to be dealt with were sitting in the rooms where the church was gathered to read the letter. That's why Paul didn't say, and can you pray for me about my upcoming journey and my, my eyesight? Because what would we do as people? Whew, this was getting uncomfortable. And I'll go ahead and pray for Paul. Lord, we pray for Paul. He's got poor eyes, and we love him. We love him. We always disagree with him, and we ain't going to do nothing with his letter. But Lord, we pray for his eyesight, that he will be having a fruitful blessedness of ministry. Amen. Let's go eat. Whew, that was just like, man going out with the Judaizers to grab dinner, not eating pork. And Paul is saying, no. People who are prone to cause division and factions, they're all about, I got to get people on my team. I got to get people on my side. No, none of this is Christ. None of this is the cross. It's all about what will people think of me? What do I think of me? What I think is what everybody should think. Problem? You're just going head-to-head against God. It, it never works out good to go against God. They want to boast. When we belong to God... We've been received, pardoned, forgiven, adopted. And he is, we're on his side. Revelation says we come with him. He's the one fighting. We're the one with him. I'm just with him. I'm with him. The king of kings and the Lord of lords. I'm just, I'm with him. That's a pretty good thing to say. Unless you're not with him. And then the one that comes with the sword, the word of God, a flaming fire out of his mouth on a conquering beast. Oh, to the people who say, I'm against him. And eternal hell is the answer to that prayer. I will not have that man reign over me, the Son of God who died forgive and to redeem. So, beloved, we got to look closely at this letter. We got to understand this letter. We need to listen to these warnings because these warnings are not just for 2,000 years ago, and that was good information, and I hope they really pay attention to those. These warnings are to us, to our own. We have areas in our own hearts where we can fall prey into these areas, carrying what people think, and the image I present, and, and all of those things Oh, that we will humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God. And the Bible says, and in due time, He will exalt you. He will exalt you. And Paul writes, and he loves these people. And one more Sunday, we're going to spend in this word. And when Paul finishes that, and he puts that document into a hand of a runner, and he says, run. Get this word to the churches. And may they. And then what does he do? He commends them to God and to the word of his grace. He can't make them do anything. I can't make you do anything. All I can do is deliver the mail. All I'm responsible to do is love you and pray for you and serve you and serve the word to you and take the word week after week. What a privilege it is to take the word and it goes up before me and then it comes through to you and it's through a broken vessel that God flows his grace to his people and then you gather in community and you break bread together and you care and you apply this in life and what will God do with that people? Change the world. How do I know that, Pastor? Because it's been 2,000 years and that original document right here You know, that's a copy. That's not it. Paul didn't write it. That one he wrote is long gone. But God's word, it abides forever. Amen? Let's stand together. Father in heaven, it is a joy. It is an honor. It is a heavy, heavy responsibility Given to me, entrusted to me as a steward of your people, as a steward of your word. Father, we as elders do not own this church. We do not own these people. We will answer to you one day. And we want to lead, to shepherd in a way that is faithful that is loving, that is tender, that is Christ-centered. Oh, God, I pray that you will build your church. I pray, Lord, for these who are here this morning, for those who are here in the first service, Father, that we will surrender all to you, that we will live our lives for you. Be, Lord, I'm asking you, do what you want to do in us. I thank you for the gospel, and I thank you for grace, and I thank you that today, for anyone who hears the message, this simple gospel, and they say, God, I'm a sinner. And I've rebelled against you, I've lived in rebellion against you. My thoughts and my ways have been more important than your thoughts and your ways. I've been this religious person, I've tried to do all of these things, and I can't save myself, so I'm trusting in you right here, right now. Take my life. Father, would you save them? Remake them. And then use us together as your children, as brothers and sisters in this family, to bring this good news, this great news everywhere we go. Bring to our mind people that we love, that we're living in life together, at work, different places, who need this gospel. And embolden us by your spirit to share it with them, we pray. In Jesus' name.